0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about, but we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to podsurvey, That's P O D S U R V E Y podsurvey.com slash James, and take a quick, totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Such a pleasure to talk to Jason Harris, who wrote the book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. He has a completely different approach to it than all the so-called experts on persuasion. I learned a lot. These techniques work. I really related to a lot of the techniques, and I know for a fact they work. Listen to this podcast closely. Jason Harris, the author of The Soulful Art of Persuasion, The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influencer. Let's talk about The Soulful Art of Persuasion by Jason Harris. This is a great book because normally you see books about persuasion where it's like, oh, if you cross your legs and then everybody else crosses their legs and they start obeying your every command. And I just think that academic research is just bullshit. And the stuff you say here really resonates with me, in particular, the relationship between storytelling and persuasion and no one's pointed this out except you among other things in the book, but persuasion and skill development, which I thought was very interesting. And that's really true. But maybe we could start with, Oh, and look, you got Ryan Holiday on the back, Lewis Howes. Like you think of me on the back.
1: Well, I I always wanted to meet you and now meeting you next book. You'll get me on the next book, next book. But by the way, speaking of next book, before we talk about this book, I had two book ideas for my next book floating around. One of them I can't do anymore because I got your email yesterday, uh, life advice from people over a hundred. Oh, okay. I wanted to write a whole book about people on their way out and what advice they had for people on how to live.
0: Cool though. I love that idea. You hear about someone who's all over a hundred, like what advice do they have? It's like people who are married over 30 years and people who are over a hundred, Two categories of probably the most miserable people on the planet. And yet we're always asking them for a lot of advice.
1: (laughs) So I'm in advertising. You were in the space, the way I build a successful company that's independent, no investors, you know, we're 50 million a year in revenue. That's great. Totally bootstrapped. You know, it took a long time obviously, but I remember reading a Gallup poll that said, you know, what are the most dishonest professions? in America. And number one was politicians, which you would expect, right? Yeah. Number two was car salesmen. And then number three was advertising practitioners. And I thought, well, that's pretty shitty that people think our our business is so dishonest. And so I sort of thought, well, I build a successful advertising business by persuading people to hire us and Than persuading consumers to react to the ads that we put out there to move units. And I've done that through what what I think is a more soulful networking relationship building way that isn't shady or predicated on fooling people or persuasion that's about mirror and matching. And like you were saying, you know, it's not about like, well, if this guy likes golf, then I'll play golf or if she loves chess, then I'll learn chess and become a good chess player. So I felt like I had something to offer in a way that I built my business, which I think was more authentic and true. And it seemed like the right time for this book to come out because we're living in such a bifurcated culture. And I felt like this is a more true way to be an entrepreneur.
0: And and I want to add that this book also is not just for persuading as an organization or how to get your company to persuade more customers. I really resonated with this on an individual level. Like persuasion has like a bad rap to it. Like you have to be inauthentic to persuade someone of something, which I think is a real scarcity way of thinking. Why can't you be who you are? And then people like you enough to be persuaded by what you say. And you, and you address this, it's the second to last chapter or third to last chapter you reference Tim Ferris learning a new skill every year. But yeah. if you, if you begin the process of mastering a skill, it adds a new competence to your demeanor. People could see the competence. And I think people do listen to people who know what it is to work hard and improve at something and learn something difficult. And it's the package that makes you that's persuasive, not some techniques or tricks.
1: Yeah, it's it's also being an original, being yourself, totally being yourself. Uh, everyone else has already taken the Oscar Wilde quote, famous Oscar Wilde quote. That, your uniqueness and your idiosyncrasies, that's what makes other people gravitate towards you. Or it's hate not, me, in my case. Well, well no, I mean, you you build a successful career by being yourself.
0: You yeah, know? No, not, that's try, true. not
1: trying to be anyone else. That's why you have a persona and you've been, you wrote a lot of books and you've got a podcast and invested in, in a lot of different things because people understand who you are. You have an identity.
0: And you're always, you're always who you are. But sometimes when you say, particularly when you say, Hey, if you want to be more persuasive, you got to be who you are. There's a fine line there. like, I could almost picture people taking notes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, Be who I am. So it's almost like then they're not going to be who they are because they're thinking, they're thinking that's something, another task they have to perform. Okay. Be, I got to put this in the be who I am. uh, uh, Category. Yeah. (laughs) It is a task actually. Like, Learning who you
1: are is a task and there's and, and there's ways to do that. You know, write, writing down your value system, the things you care about, the things that, that interest you, your passions and going to explore those passions. It is a task and it's probably the most important task. Figuring out who your role models are, who you, who you want to emulate and studying them. It does take work to be who you are actually.
0: That technique, it's mentioned also in uh, Todd Herman's book, uh, The Alter Ego Effect. The idea of finding the people you really look up to emulate almost like virtual mentors. This is a real worthwhile technique for finding out who you are, because who excites you, the people who inspire you, they're triggering something that that's real inside of you. Not like, oh, I need to be like John D. Rockefeller in order to be rich, but more like, oh, I need to be like this person because I really admire what they've done in life. And like, who, who inspires you? Who do you study who virtually taught you uh, some of the things about yourself? I mean, my biggest uh, inspiration is David Bowie. I oh yeah, you like, mentioned that him yeah, in I, the context. I talk
1: about him all the time because yeah. I would like, you know, study his interviews. I would look at, you know, how he constructs his music. And the fact that he was unabashedly who he was and he was always reinventing himself with new ideas and new characters, which seems counterintuitive because if you're who you are, why do you have to add other layers? But it was, he was always on a journey of self-discovery. And he, you know, I could never do it the, the same way he could, but he never cared what anyone thought. And when he started in the music business, you know, quick story, his first uh, uh, album, he was, he was Dave, David jo- Dave Jones at that point. They wanted him to do folk music like Bob Dylan, because Bob Dylan was really popular. And he did a whole album of folk music that sold like 10 copies. And (laughs) he went away and studied in a Buddhist monastery, did experimental arts, he became a mime. He did all this weird shit that David Bowie would do. Then he came back and started writing music for himself. And that's the David Bowie that we know now. And that to me is like proof point of don't do what other people are telling you to do And they want you to be in this nice box that can sell. But if you're true to who you are and go find yourself, you're going to become one of the best recording artists of all time, possibly. And, and that to me, I always stay true to that because in in business, in life, you, you, people want to put you in the box that's comfortable for them and you're never going to succeed that way. I mean, you talk about that in your work all the time.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, um, What's a time when you felt like you were persuading where you weren't yourself? Like what's a, what what set you on the trajectory of, you know what, I got to I got to do this right. I'm not going to I'm not going to do this the BS way. I'm going to do this right. Were you always this way or like was there a moment where not necessarily a moment, but did you ever was there a bad persuasion that that kind of woke you up a little bit?
1: Um there was you know, there's, there's probably been like different, different times in in my life, but I was, um, you know, in business early on in the company, I was, I was persuaded to, um, start. Remember when Vine was popular? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I was persuaded. You talk about Vine. Yeah. I talk about that in there, but, but that to me was like a business case where I was like, all right, I'm not going to try to go for a, a, a get rich quick, Scheme or do something that, in my gut, I don't I don't believe in or I don't I don't value. And you know, we created this like search engine for Vine. We spent a ton of company resources. Other people had persuaded me and convinced me that it was we were going to flip it and sell it to Twitter for a ton of money. Because if you remember Vine, you can never really search for videos very well. And then they we launched the product, and then uh, a week later they killed Vine. (laughs) And I was like, I just spent all this fucking money. And this product, I knew, I don't even, I didn't even like vine to begin with. It wasn't something that was true to me. And I realized you should never spend money or invest in things that you don't really believe in that, that isn't, they're not true to who you are or your what you believe or that you think will be successful. And that was a really hard lesson. And I never did that again.
0: Well, and there's so many reasons behind that as well, because a, whenever you start any business, you have to be able to validate the idea. And who better to validate the idea than if you are building the business that you would use. If you wouldn't use it, you need other resource. You need to spend energy now validating the idea. But if you are obsessed with Vine and you totally would use this, and this is what Vine users have been waiting for. And you know, that deep down, you don't need to validate the idea. You just validated it.
1: Because then it would be true to who I was, but I, I did something that I didn't care for. didn't. And so there's a couple, um, instances where, where that hap- I got talked into something that I that I really didn't believe in, or you know maybe sold um, uh, an ad or advertising product or an idea to a client that I didn't really believe in in my gut that you know didn't didn't move the needle it didn't work so I, I really quickly in my career stopped stopped doing that if I don't believe in it I can't sell it and I'm not going to back it.
0: Yeah, like uh, I remember one time. I was pre your agency, but I had a small agency. I was selling Philip Morris, the cigarette company, Philip Morris owned Kraft, And they were also the cigarette, the Kraft cheese company and the Philip Morris cigarette company. And so I remember I go to the meeting and it's in a conference room right on, um, like 41st and 40 or 42nd and, and park maybe. And, uh, everybody's around the conference room, smoking uh, around the table, smoking, and there's a plates of cheese cubes in <laughs> and I hate cheese with a passion and I don't oh smoke my God. <laughs> and here I am. And I don't believe people should smoke. And I, I personally don't would never recommend cheese to anybody. And here I am selling my hardest to get this client. And it just, maybe that's why I really hated that business. Cause I don't think I was ever myself when I was doing that business.
1: Did you sell, uh, did you sell what you were selling? Did, did they buy it?
0: Yes. They bought oh. it.
1: Wow. That, see, that's unusual because usually uh, people will have really good bullshit detectors and they could tell you,
0: well, I don't know, you, you somehow you you fooled them. No, but you know what it was is that I believed in the internet. And this was in the mid-90s when not everyone did believe in that and not everyone had a website. And so I was able to passionately talk about that. And most of my other uh, clients actually were music labels and movie studios. And I did believe in, in that and the internet. So that that- was much better for that me. That made sense, yeah. But the but the companies like Philip Morris or American Express, I didn't care about those companies at all, but they were big clients. So I did whatever it took to get them. But I felt really, really bad about myself. I mean I had to see a therapist because I felt like I didn't it's like that classic Charlie Sheen cliche line from Wall Street. Like I don't know who I am anymore. I was really yeah. felt really bad. But one, one technique which I know you would resonate with this is that when I was pitching a client, I could often think of better agencies they should use. And I was always free about saying what other agencies they should use. What were the good qualities of other agencies that were competitors of mine? And I said, I'm still running in the running for the business because I love your business, but if you need this, this and this, these other agencies are better than me. And that turned out to be inadvertently a good persuasion technique. If yeah. he's willing to recommend his competitors, he's a guy, kind of guy I wanna deal with. It's true. Well,
1: people hate, hate the word no. You know the word "no" is like the sexiest word in the English language. So if you're yeah. if you're like no, don't hire me. All of a sudden, they want to hire. They want to know why
0: they want to hire you. You know, why doesn't so. every ad, why doesn't ad, every ad start with "Don't buy us, we don't like you"?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's
0: you true. know you know I noticed with stand up comedy actually a lot of like great comedians the first thing they do is insult the audience and the comedians who are more amateurish or beginning and I, I you know I see all types because I own a club. The, the more amateurish ones pander to the audience and get them. But the, the ones who just shit all over the audience, they're instantly far more likable than the ones who pander.
1: They they like that comic better. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, another, another thing that I firmly believe in is that I think is a learned skill is storytelling, right? Um, and storytelling to me is a very useful persuasion technique, but it also relates to you getting to know who you are. You know, that's a technique. Whether it's uh, movies you love and why, or books that you've read and why you like that story, I think having stories at hand uh, to tell is is a real strength in influencing other people. Um, and when you think of like, I don't know, storytelling through the ages, the the most. Uh, you know, noted uh, people in our culture were always great storytellers. They always, they didn't use facts and data, they used story to get their message across. And so storytelling, I think is another, it can be another learned skill.
0: And and I also believe in this very strongly, like any concept, I think this is why academic papers are so dry and why many scientists hate people who write popular science books. Like the, the scientists who are able to write popular science books because they those ones are able to tell stories and that makes them a lot more money. But right. what what's an example where you've used storytelling in persuasion? So,
1: um, you know, you know uh, the psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haidt? Yeah. He always said that the mind is a story processor, not a logic processor, which I always like think about that. And I think about that all the time. But I mean, I use stories to get people at my company to believe in collaboration and I'll use stories from the business world or experiences that I've had. So I talk about it in the book, uh, one time when we pitched Walt Disney, we lost that pitch. And I use that as a metaphor for preparing when you're meeting with clients or pitching a deal. And the story was, uh, was it was me and my, my other uh, partner that we started the business together, Tommy Means. We uh, went to Disney, we had a huge pitch, we were pitching the head of parks and resorts and we created these characters because you know the Disney Imagineers, not a lot of people know who they are. They create all the all the parks uh, themes and the, you know the Imagineers? You're familiar yeah, yeah. with them? Yeah, yeah. Okay, of course you are. And so um, we created a way to unlock kids' imagination by creating, uh, bringing the Imagineers to life. And we had, we had Rock and Block that would build the park and we had Spark that would come up with the ideas and Fable that would
0: write it. I can tell. I could tell you instantly. They're not going to accept this idea. Okay. Well, because uh, it's not true to who Disney is. Well, they 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 actually love the idea. Really? All right. I rock.
1: And we had a partnership with Scholastics, and we were getting, we were trying to make the Imagineers well known with kids, so that they could dream of jobs maybe one day that they would have. And it was obviously a revenue maker for Disney because there'd be all kinds of merchandise. And so we we went to China and created these characters based on. The characters that I just told you, and we met with the head of parks and resorts, and we presented our whole thing. And he said, you know, the first thing he said was, "Uh, "I love this idea." And just so you know, because you presented it to us, we own it. And um, the only there's, you know, we want to work with you on it, but there's only one thing we want to tweak. I don't like the characters you developed. My partner, who's on the other side of the table, in my mind, I'm like, no problem. We'll just tell him like who are we to tell Disney that they can't develop characters and we're better, we're an advertising agency. We're better at developing characters than Disney. No, but my foot couldn't reach under the table to kick him. And before I could get his attention, he said, well, these are the characters, you know, take it or leave it. Oh my God. uh,
0: (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Why would he say that? Because my, the reason I had that gut instinct that I had was Disney spends billions of dollars creating characters. Like they'll spend $6 billion for Pixar's characters. They're only buying the characters. They're not, I mean, yeah, they're buying buying a a a backlog, but they're really thinking yeah. about the future. Buying the buying the yeah, right.
1: Yeah, but we had we had the concept of how to get it in schools and create a, a, you know, we did have a lot to offer. But as soon as he said that, you know, the guy got up and left, and his whole like minion of note takers left with him in a cloud of like a cartoon cloud of dust, and that was it. And what we we ended up getting drunk at the. A Burbank bar. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, I use that as a story for the agency to say you have to prepare before you 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 have a pitch of what questions will be asked. You have to collaborate with your partner to make sure you're on the same page with what you're gonna say yes to and what you're gonna say no to. And we just rushed in with all this stuff without preparation and without collaborating. And we, you know, we we had a a deal that at the time for our agency would have been huge, millions of dollars, and we lost it. And and so I, you know, that's a storytelling technique to to say, you know, prepare and collaborate. And I use that all the time when I'm when I'm talking to to employees here. So that's an example of a story storytelling.
0: I think this is an important insight that people need to l- listen to because I love Robert Cialdini. I love his book Influence. I think he presents some really great overriding concepts. And it also is about persuasion, some overriding concepts and a lot of great research about persuasion, but at its heart, I'm not gonna persuade you of anything if you hate me or it's that's gonna be true. much more difficult. And so storytelling is like this bridge that we're able to, our personality rides over it to the other person. That's how we get, you know, that's the only way to get to know each other. If you, all you know is like, I'm five foot nine and I went to this school and this is my IQ. You don't know anything about me. It's only through stories. Only through stories. Totally. And, and storytelling is how
1: you, and it can be stories from your life. It can be stories of, uh, you know, impactful events that have happened that, that mean something to you, but having a collection of these stories express who you are. That's a way of connecting with other people. And so, you know, story, but it can be a learned skill. You can learn how to tell stories and, what, you know, role models also help, you know, why do I like David Bowie? I can tell you that story and you can learn a little bit about me from that. So um, it's part of being original and who you are. Storytelling's a, a critical, critical key. And if you're doing, you know, any type of data or, or presenting, like you talked about scientists, if you're presenting results from any of your work and you bypass the story and you just go into data and numbers without a story, no one's going to remember it it's uh, it's not sticky stories are sticky and numbers aren't
0: yeah like like you look at like einstein he essentially persuaded the world of the general theory of relativity right because it was a theory for a reason he couldn't prove it i mean it wasn't there wasn't data uh, for decades on anything related to what he was talking about but he presents it with a story what if you're on the ground and another person's in a spaceship going at the speed of light what do you guys see of each other and then he's able to use that to kind of describe the theory. I still don't understand what the theory of relativity is, but I understand that story.
1: Yeah, but you remember Einstein.
0: Yeah, Einstein, because he. And not only that, his, his his whole look was a story, I, and it wasn't a calculated look. It was just uh, that's he looked like a, a the, the cliche of a genius, or that became a cliche of genius after him. I don't know. Right. Um. But I, I like these these rules that you have. Uh, and I'll read them. Never sell anything you want to buy yourself. And we discussed that a little bit, but it's really, but there's a, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not only that it's inauthentic to sell something you want to buy yourself. It's that you can understand it better. If you love the product enough to buy it yourself, don't be afraid to say no. We discussed that a little bit. And I think a lot of people are, I'm afraid to say no often, which is why I even wrote a book about it. Never let relationships drop to zero. What do you mean by that?
1: So that is, um, that's sort of always been my approach in, in building a business. And I don't know if you approach relationships the same, but if you're pitching someone and you're investing time, and this is, this is personal and business. If you're investing time to get to know someone and they turn you down and you don't get, get that business, you still created a connection and that connection can wither away and you can never talk to that person again, or that connection can live on. And so if you're building that connection, you should always stay in touch with people. And you can stay in touch with people by sending them a text, sending them an article about something. If I know that you love NFTs and we connect, maybe I'll send you something about an NFT in three months to stay on your radar and not let our relationship drop to zero. And that's, that's a simple, but practical use of doing that.
0: Yeah. um, I was talking to, I was talking to Jeff ML the other day, who was the former CEO of GE for 16 years. And he's, he put it, uh, said a similar thing, which is that we'll always spend time each day contacting people. You don't need people want to know. You're not just calling them when you need something. And for him, that was a very authentic way to, to operate. And, and it worked, it served him. Well, that's a very powerful technique.
1: Yeah, so um, it's easy in business and in life to just march forward. And this idea, it's the same thing as, you know, I talk about never be closing and letting go of transactional thinking and thinking about your network and meaningful relationships as an approach, not as a zero-sum game of winning and losing and winning and losing and winning and losing, but connecting a network of people and building on those relationships And that way you're never closing. You're just ever expanding. And I think that's really that, you know, as an entrepreneur, how I see the world.
0: Related to this is this fact I heard about LinkedIn, which is that most people get job offers, not from their LinkedIn connections, but the connections of connections. So it's like, what you're saying is basically keep in touch with the connections, you know, and, and, and keep working on, like never be closing, always working on those relationships they might not have a job for you, but if you're the one who's keeping in touch with them and now you need a job, you're using the whole brain power of your network. And that's why the, the friends of your friends are the ones that end up giving you the jobs.
1: Yeah, they'll maybe hear about a job and you'll be on the radar. Yeah. They'll reach, they'll reach out to you. There's a technique that I use in my calendar where I mark out 20 minutes every day and I plan it out on Sunday, 20 minutes of every day to reach out and connect to three people
0: in my network. That's important to schedule it. I, I should do that. I'm bad at keeping in touch with people and, and that's a good idea.
1: But if you don't do it, then you'll be like, oh, I'll reach out to them at some point. But you, you never do. But if you make it sort of muscle memory and you only do it five days a week, 20 minutes, it's nothing. And you just think of something, some interest that they have, and you reach out to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. And you send them, you know, I know you're into Peloton, I saw this article, boom. You know, I know you're you're a big Ben and Jerry's fan. They come out with a new flavor, boom. And it just reminds them that that you're thinking about them. And it, it seems sort of forced to schedule it. But like anything in our lives, if you don't set aside the time, you'll never get to it.
0: You know, the, the fourth item you mentioned here is make sure you have some skin in the game. And this um, is a little bit of a reference to the Nassim Taleb's book, called skin in the game, which is the idea that you make better decisions. If you have something on the line, you're, you're more aware of the risks. If you have skin in the game, if you have like a money invested in something or time or emotion or whatever, you know, describe how you, how you mean it.
1: So really from a business standpoint, if I'm making a, a partnership with a, with a brand and um, I wanna, I wanna have skin in the game. So I might say, you know, our fee is X, but I'll take, I'll take this much off our fee and this much off our profit. And then in success, if we're successful together, I'll make that up on on the other side. That makes me work twice as hard for that client because I have upside. I'm not just getting paid for my hours and time, but I have upside on the back end. And I feel like that goes hand in hand with anything in your life that's worthy of, of pursuing.
0: Let's say you're an employee and you go into your boss's office, I think this is the classic persuasion case. You want to convince your boss to give you a raise. How would you demonstrate skin in the game?
1: That's a great question. So, you know, I think I deserve to be promoted and at the next level and get this kind of bump and your boss isn't quite sure or doesn't see it. You could say, all right, how about I take on this one detail or one function of what that new role would be and I'll do it for three months. And you can tell me if you think I did it successfully or not. And then you do that, That's skin in the game, it's extra work for you. You're not getting paid for that extra work, but you're going in and doing it. Three months later, you come back. It's going to be hard for that boss to say, well, I don't think you're ready or you don't deserve it. You've already performed this function virtually for free for this for your boss. And then your boss can say, yeah, you're right. You're You're, you're ready to move on to the next level. That's one example off the top of my head. But... I think that's you putting skin in the game and, and putting in extra hours to prove that you're worthy of that bump.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or, or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use HIMSS from now Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app. Track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Can you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I always admire people who are great at what they do because it's not easy to be great at something that's worth getting good at. In fact, it's extremely difficult. And someone who's done that shows me they have passion, shows me they know how to meta-learn, they know how to learn how to learn. And and there's kind of just this aura of competence about them that I always admire. And you talk about it in the book, but describe how that's related to persuasion.
1: So, you know, I think there's two techniques in the soulful piece. So, you know, the book's broken into four basic principles, original, being yourself, generous, which is giving things away without expecting anything in return, empathetic, which is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, and then soulful. And those are the four principles that I feel make up my version of persuasion or soulful persuasion. And the soulful part really has two elements. One is uh, skill hunting, which pointed out, which is really hunting out new skills around your passion to always be developing a proficiency in something new. You might be great at investing. You might be great at writing books. You might be great at advertising. That's awesome. But you also can learn, I don't know, how to cook, how to garden, how to box, how to do karate, how to play bass. Every two or three years, you should be adding on to your proficiency and never letting that lapse, I think, no matter how old you get, you should always go through, remind yourself of that thing you always wanted to do. I know you're you love chess, right? You're a great chess player. I watch Queen's Gambit like the whole damn country. I started to learn how to play chess. That's like my new thing, and man, it's very hard. By the way,
0: I'll, I'll give you lessons. We'll get we'll get you. All right, that'd be awesome. I'm serious too. If you because I I I believe that that just as Einstein said too is that. Uh, You can't understand anything unless you can explain it simply.
1: It's, well, no one's been able to explain it simply, Um, but that'd be great, I'd take you up on that. So, you know, that's my current thing is I'm gonna spend like two or three years trying to get moderately capable at chess, and then I'll move on to something else, but I'll still play chess. I did that with like learning the bass, learning to cook, et cetera. And so I think every couple of years, It's good practice to add new skills to your arsenal and to your tool belt, but you have to always, like right now I'm in the suck part. Like I don't get it. I'm trying to read about it. Uh, I'm trying to uh, calculate, you know, three moves ahead and it's, I'm in the part that sucks. Like it's painful. You know, no one likes to be shitty at something, but I'm going through that suck to get to the other side and to turn around and say, you know, Hey, I was able to get okay at chess.
0: But this is the great thing about learning almost anything is that, and this is gonna sound counterintuitive, but they all suck <laughs> and they always suck. Chess never gets better. It always sucks. Some things get better, which is that you appreciate the nuances a lot more. It's one of those things, the more you know, the more you realize you need to know, and the more you appreciate, just like just like cooking, just like tennis, chess, math, whatever, uh, business, but it, anything worth doing is going to suck most of the time because as you move up, you're comp- always competing against good competition. And as you get better, you're competing against better competition. And I just watched a video this morning of the, and I only say this cause this is true in every industry. I watched a video of the strongest player in Canada lose a game cause he made a blunder like anyone else. And, uh, he likes, he like yelled a curse and threw a chair across the room. <laughs> This is the guy who's the strongest player in Canada and has been a professional for 20 years.
1: What do you, do you enjoy playing it now, though? Don't, don't you?
0: Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, but, okay. but I will. But it sucks when you lose. And if you lose, like let's say you're winning a game the entire time and then you just make a shitty mistake at the end, that is just the worst feeling. Because when you, when, you're creating a masterpiece. This is, and you're thinking about this, how I'm going to explain it to people. Like, it's so great. It's like, there's going to be books written (laughs) about this game. And then you just like drop your queen for no reason. And you're just like, Oh, Oh, I didn't see that coming. This was, this was the Bible for me. And now it's like just a a bad pamphlet. Like it's nothing. That's a,
1: a bad pamphlet. But yeah, I mean, I learned, uh, I've been learning how to box for like four years. That was like a new skill for me. And I thought, you know, it's there's there's six punches, like how hard can it be to learn that skill? And you realize with anything, even something with six punches or chess with like infinite moves you can make, it's infinitely complicated. Like you'll yeah. never, it's very hard to master uh, those new skills, but the learning and the development and the, the way it wires your brain, that's like incredibly useful, but it makes you more influential and more persuasive that every couple of years you dig into something new because very few people do that. So I think skill
0: hunting is is an important thing for people to, to get with. Explain why, because it's not like you're trying to persuade people about boxing. What is it about the process of learning a new skill, good enough to be, oh, let's say above average at it. What is it about that that makes someone more influential, more persuasive? You know, anytime you're learning
1: a skill, it tweaks slightly how you see the world from the, the thing that you're learning. And I think, The fact that you're even doing it, I think, is inspirational to people that you're even trying to master something hard and new when most people wouldn't really try to learn a new skill. But I also think every skill that you develop, there is some new element of how you see the world or how you approach things. It also gives you confidence in yourself that you can go through the suck and get out the other side and repeat that. And I think that makes you You know, I I don't know um, how to measure it or put it in a bottle, it's a vibe. It makes you more influential and more inspirational to other people.
0: I think also it makes you more confident. And, you know, you talk about positivity in the book too. To be great at something, you have to be positive through the suck. You have to be able to think, okay, I suck now, but I know if I apply these principles of learning and I put the time in, I'm going to be good at this. And that's a, a positive framework. It's it's you know a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset.
1: That's right. And it also makes you stick with something, right? It makes you not quit. It makes you comfortable with sucking or failing or losing, but then sticking it through to get to the other side. So I think those are other skills that it develops. And I think once you've got a successful career, once you maybe have some money or financial means, and you're not going through the suck, and you're not learning new skills. There, you're you are at a fixed mindset, right? You're yeah. Like, you're like, okay, I mastered this thing. I did really well at it. I was successful, and that's it. You know, and maybe you'll loosely try to consult or do other things on the side, but you're not really challenging yourself.
0: You've lost that grit somehow.
1: You lost that grit. And skill hunting, I love that. I should have written down the book. But you lost that grit. Skill hunting brings back that grit. It brings you down a notch so that you can get better and, and get better. And then the other part of there's skill hunting and then there's this idea of, of being inspiring or soulful and doing something for other people. So that's the other part to me of being soulful, a soulful persuader is trying to give back to the world, your community, the culture in some way. Taking the skill that you have and giving back by doing something uh, beyond yourself, you know, doing something that you're doing not for money, not for monetary gain, not for fame, but purely because you want to do it. It's, it's pure philanthropy that doesn't involve donating money. It's, it's your time, your energy to help other people. That to me makes you way more influential, way more persuasive. And more of an inspiration.
0: I agree, but why is that? Like, what what's happening there? B- I, uh, connect the dots a little bit, and and also I just want to add. It seems like there's there's two types of giving. So there's the giving that's like okay, I'm um, cleaning up the streets on the weekends. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing. I'm giving up my time. And then there's giving directly to the people in your circle or the people you're you're persuading. So I'm giving ideas for free, or I'm giving in the example of persuasion with the boss, you're giving, you know, you'll, you'll do more work for for free. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I do believe in, from a business standpoint, like when we started, I think the first year we did all of our work for free to build up case studies so that we had big brands like Microsoft and other brands associated with us so that we could go get paying brands. And that's one thing, but that's still building a business. There's nothing soulful about that. That's more strategic, right? That's more like, okay, that's smart. Or the boss example is a strategic play. What I'm talking about is you would say that your soulful thing right now, I'm putting words in your mouth, is the choose yourself concept and getting people to change their lives, right? Yeah. That, that's the thing that, that you're doing that is soulful, but it's also a business that you're making money off of it and you're selling books. And so that's uh, one benefit maybe you would take that idea or that concept or that skill you have and do workshops. And maybe you're doing this. I don't know. You're doing workshops or speaking engagements or one-on-one for, uh, to people for free or yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing yeah. exactly that. Oh, you are. Okay. Well, that was a guess, but that is your, you're more inspirational and influential because you're doing that for free to help other people without expecting any money, no monetary gain, you're not selling books. You're doing that because you're purely have an idea uh, and you want people to have the best life that they can.
0: But how does like, since in general, nobody knows what I do on the, on that hand, that's, that's part of giving, how does that translate into more persuasion ability? Well, it
1: would translate if you let people know you were doing it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, but I don't let <laughs> people know I doing it. So, so I, I like. Why don't it. you
1: want people to know?
0: There's really not good ways to transmit what you do privately to help people, and not that I and I and I never seek those ways out because maybe there is no ways. I I don't know. Like like on Kickstarter or whatever, you could say oh, or GoFundMe, I could say oh, I donated to this, but or you could be anonymous. And you know, it's, I always think it's a back and forth. Sometimes if your friends are aware that you're giving to something, they're more likely to give that's, there's research on that. But other times it seems like it's more of a, in Judaism, you say it's more of a mitzvah if, yeah. you, if you do it anonymous. Well, I, th- I
1: think you can broadcast that you're a mensch. You know, I think that's my, that's my philosophy is I agree. You should do that stuff, but you should talk about it. And you should talk about it not to because you want everyone patting yourself on the back. You talk about it because you want to inspire other people to do the same thing. So if you're doing that, but no one knows about it, then are other authors that have a skill that they can give people to help turn their life around? Are they they'll really be like, "Well, James doesn't do that. Why should I do that?" But if you're yeah, doing it, point. maybe they'll it'll inspire other people to do it. So I think you should always talk about it. And brands, same way with brands, like uh, you know, Warby Parker they don't hide that they give away glasses to parts of the world where they can't afford glasses. They they use it as a, well, we get one, give one model or Patagonia that, you know, is, is is fighting climate change. They don't hide that, tuck that away. They talk about it and that becomes part of their brand. And Patagonia is a more influential brand because they talk about the money they give away and what they do and their causes. I think that's the same for people as a brand. Um, and we should do it. And you'd be surprised at how many people don't do anything like that.
0: You know? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I think everybody gets particularly, we live at a very fast, fast age. And so people get so caught up in the hierarchy that they're in and their money situation and the responsibilities that they lose track of the fact that we live in this bigger world that you need to contribute to, I think. And, you know, I, but also I think you, I, I don't know if I totally agree that strategic giving is different from giving because I run into a lot of people who say, Oh, I'm not going to give so-and-so my ideas. What if they steal them? I'm always in favor of give everyone all your ideas because then it, it, it encourages in yourself a feeling of abundance. There's no one idea that's going to make or break you that if someone steals your ideas, that's okay. It's validation. And you move on to your many other ideas. And I think that could make one more persuasive, just, knowing that you're the source of ideas.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's a good, that's a good thing if you're giving, uh, but maybe that's your gift, right? You freely give ideas to people without expecting anything. Yeah. Maybe, that, maybe that's your gift. The way I, I toggle between this soulful idea and the skill hunting is skill hunting is really for your personal mindset and soulfulness is really for the benefit of the world and for other people around you. And so that's the difference, and it's usually around you have to be giving away the soulful piece based on a skill you have. Like um, I do a lot of pro bono. My skills advertising, so I give do a lot of pro bono advertising campaigns for you know Red Nose Day and the UN, and we'll give away our time and resources and energy. Uh, you know we're working on a campaign, a vaccine campaign now, so we'll give that stuff away in order to help a greater good or a greater cause. But that's the main skill that I have. You know, yours might be, you might have investing advice or or whatever, or the the whole choose yourself, trying to get people to live the best life they can. That part that you're giving away is the thing you're most skilled at. Oh, so I have a example of how this pays off and how this makes you an influential person. A friend of mine was, a. Uh, hair cutter in London, his name's Josh Combs. And he was like, you know, and this happened to me when I, in advertising, I'm like, that's it? Like, I'm just gonna make ads? Like, then I started doing my skill for good and it reinvigorated me in my career. And he was the same way, he was cutting hair. He's like, I guess I'm, I'm a hairdresser, I'm a barber. Then he started going on the streets of London and cutting homeless people's hair. And then that was at his lunch break. Then he did it every lunch break. Then he would take a day, a week off, and do it. Then he would take a week, a month off, do it. Then he would travel around the world and you know, take pictures of before and after. He would talk to homeless people who he would make them feel dignity and feel different and like someone was there trying to help him, help them become a little bit better. And then he turned that into speaking about it and, and, and writing a book about it and turned it into a career. So he took a skill of cutting hair, turned it into being inspirational and building a new platform for himself off of it. So, you know, if an ad man can do it and a barber can do it, anyone can do it. Uh, you know, that's how I look at it.
0: That story is in your book and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful story. I think it's finding those it's almost like you have to find your niche in giving as well. Like if you just donate to a charity and host a ball or whatever, or a fundraiser, that's great, of course. But so, and that's what feels like the average philanthropist or active philanthropy is, but it's, it's really not like, you kind of have to find your own unique voice even in giving.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's usually from some skill, uh, that you have. Yeah. I mean, you could teach, uh, you, should, you could teach chess to, uh, underprivileged kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, the good thing is there are a lot of, uh, t- t- educational programs for underprivileged on chess for underprivileged kids, because it's sort of documented that kids who study chess end up doing better in school and jobs later on in life. So, uh, that's, that's actually, there's probably more underprivileged kids learning chess than privileged kids, even though it's thought of as this sort of stodgy privileged kind of game.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Um, you know, and all of these techniques in your book, they're not techniques. This is sort of how one should live life. And then you create this aura of influence and persuasion around you. And that's what, I think that's what makes a leader.
1: Yeah, that's right,
0: yeah. So this, this really becomes, for me, this becomes more a book about, about leadership than, hey, I'm gonna convince you to hire me or I'm gonna convince my boss for a raise. All of those things can happen as well. Lead, yeah. Leaders could lead from from behind. So you could start off in your career and still be a leader.
1: Yeah. But I, yeah, I think there are techniques for a way to approach the world. I think it's personal and business really, it kind of blends, but I think it does. These are leadership qualities that will make you, make you successful or help make you successful. But I didn't set out with a plan like, okay, I'm going to do these four things. And this, this is my plan and that's how I'm going to be successful. It's, it's how I ended up operating That I then categorized as these skills that, you know, hopefully other people can learn from. How
0: did, how did you pitch this book? Like, how did you convince them to give you a book deal in the sense that like, let's say I'm the agent or the publisher or whoever you were pitching. And I say, okay, Jason, you're you're uh, I've heard, I looked you up. I heard of your agency. Um, you do great stuff. Uh, clearly, you know, about persuasion because you've gotten a bunch of clients and everything but I've, I've already published like 10 books about persuasion in the past two years. Uh, I'm almost, maybe you can write a book about that Disney story instead or something like that. Like what what did you encounter when you were, when you were pitching this book?
1: Well, I, I um, you know, was published through Penguin Random House. I had a really great editor. I'd never written a book before. And I don't know if uh, this happened in your Harper uh, Collins deal, but my my book was more about um, entrepreneurship and how to things that I think make you su- a successful entrepreneur in starting a business. And what happens, it's very much like the entertainment business. You get an editor, and your editor says, Well, that that book is like has this narrow audience. You need to reach this many people to have a successful best-selling book. So we have to open it up to be about business you know, writ large and about being a better person, not just how do you, skills you need for an entrepreneur. And so that's how it developed. I took the same principles, but I, I made it, uh, I opened the aperture uh, to me about, about any business and, and persuasion in general, not about persuasion in the entrepreneur sense, but the same four principles were there to start with. I don't know if you encountered that. They always try to make it broader and broader.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's it's there's a balance because sometimes if you try to be everything to everybody, end up being nothing to nobody or nothing to everybody rather. Yeah, you know. But the the title for my book and even Choose Yourself went through a couple of iterations before. Title's hard because people say don't judge a book by its cover, but there's actually no other way to judge a book. (laughs) So you only see its cover at first, and you only see the title, and then you have to decide your first decision, which is whether to pick it up or not. I think title is everything. Yeah. Title sometimes I, I, cover if the cover is really good. Yeah, your yeah. cover's good, but oh, uh, the title's great. It's a great title.
1: Oh yeah, thanks. Well, I don't think "Choose Yourself" could be any clearer.
0: No, and I like "Choose Yourself" because it was a call to action, and yeah. people respond to that. And, or, or if you make up a word like "Free Economics" or the four Hour Work Week," like if you make up a concept that, or you know, that becomes yours then, then, and choose yourself was a little bit like that as well. But I also uh, validated the idea in a sense by, uh, I put up Facebook ads of several different book titles and saw which ones were getting the most clicks.
1: Oh, so, that's really smart. You did some AB testing early on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like that.
0: So w- one more question just in general about advertising, I yeah, see sure. all these ads and they're so boring. Like I'll see, I won't name any specific company, but let's say I'll see a, com- a phone company advertising about five G, and everybody's standing in line, and the person with one G is not happy, and the person with five G is very happy. This is so boring. Why don't they? Why doesn't someone like ever, you know, really? Th- step out of the box and do something that's really noticeable as opposed to an ad that you're just not going to remember. No, one's going to remember this ad. The only reason I remember it was because I was astonished how boring it was. (laughs) Well,
1: I think, uh, like all business, when you're, when you're doing well and you're printing money, the, uh, risk is too great to do something, you know, extraordinary. When you're a challenger brand, like just starting, you have no choice. You know, you have to stand out. You have to say something. You have to be, you can't be wallpaper. And that's when the best advertising comes is when you're ba- either you're you're in a d- massive decline and your business is like on the way out and you need a resurgence or you're just starting out and you have to get famous fast. And those that's when the best advertising comes. A lot of those companies, they're doing fine. The ad's just like a little slice of memory, like, hey, we're AT&T, we're Verizon. You know we're still here. That's all it is. Is like we're ah. still here, and you don't have to. You don't have to swing for the fences, and you know strike out. You you just you're just here. It's just like constant layer, which I I agree. I hate that advertising, but that's a uh, a lot of it's like that, and that's because those companies are printing money.
0: I guess that's right. Like the the we're still here concept versus the, um versus I I I if I was making an ad, I would think wouldn't you want your viewer, let's say it's a TV ad. Wouldn't you want your viewer to say, "What? the uh, What did I? Do? I can't believe they just did that. They, they just did that." That's what I would think they were thinking. But I guess you're right that for them, it's important not to think that way. The, the, the we're still here is very important for them.
1: Yeah, like we just did a an ad on the Golden Globes for a company called Freedom Mom, which is a a breastfeeding company for um, new moms, and we showed. The team that did it which was all female team uh absolutely crushed the concept and the ad and it was actually showing the struggles and the hardships and what a pain it is uh, to learn how to breastfeed and that this company's here to help you and we actually got nbc to show on the golden globes uh you know females breastfeeding which was against their standards but that's a way to take a com- a, a relatively unknown company and be noticed and get coverage and go for the, go, go, go big. And so that's an example of, of, of how to do it.
0: Well, well, like, like obviously one of the most famous commercials ever is the 1984 apple commercial. It only aired once during the 1984 Olympics. And it doesn't even mention the word apple in it. Yeah. And and so that's an example of them trying to communicate who they authentically are. Like they're the rebellious young upstart against. The
1: George Orwellian future. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. and, and it's also very giving in that they have so much confidence, I mean, giving in the strategic sense and that they appear to have so much confidence in themselves, they don't even need to say what their name is. I know. And that is, that's when they had
1: no choice. They had to be, they had, every, they had to have everyone looking up Apple, right? Like, that's why they did that ad.
0: And it made a
1: massive, massive
0: impact. Has anyone done a book of, and this is just a side thing, has anyone done a book of like, the hundred greatest ad campaigns of all time, and then analyzing and breaking them down. No, you should do that book. It's like, it sounds like a fun book.
1: Uh, it should be a fun book. Don't tell me it's too narrow. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, but you know, I, it would go. It would be a, te- a textbook, though, too. So you would sell a lot just by virtue of that.
1: That's a good. I like. I like the way you think.
0: Yeah. There you yeah. go. No, uh, right. look, Jason Harris. Well, you already
1: uh, stole. You stole my next book idea. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you just gave me one too.
0: Yeah. right. You yeah, yeah. Have that one. I won't write it. Jason Harris, The Soulful Art of Persuasion, The 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influencer. It's really true. I've experienced these techniques myself and it was so great to see you put names and and, uh, a process and a system around them. And it's a great book about persuasion and which is a topic that I also love and read lots of books on. And I super enjoyed this one.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to take you up on that uh, chess lesson.
0: A- anytime we'll schedule uh, it. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, I-, I believe in this learning technique that was explained to me by Frank Shamrock, who was a, a 10 year world mixed martial arts champion. He always had to learn new martial arts. So he had a technique called plus minus equal and you find a plus, which is someone to teach you. And it could be virtual or real. You find equals people who are at your level, who are rising up and passionate and you challenge each other. And you find, a minus, which is a negative way to say it, but it's, it's you find people who someone you could you can explain. beat. <laughs> well, someone you can explain to, yes, oh, yeah, but yeah, okay. you should be able to beat them too. But someone you can explain concepts to. So, and I find because I'm since the Queen's Gambit came out, I'm studying chess for the first time in 23 years. I've never, I haven't improved, I haven't taken a lesson in in 23 years, and your skills decrease very; they atrophy the way muscles do. The, my skills are. 50% of what they were when I was at my peak in 1997. But I now am using all these techniques to get, uh, almost as an experiment to see if, 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 the techniques I write about work, but I'm, uh, getting better than I ever was at. My goal is to get not only as good as I was at chess before, in 1997, but much, much better. Oh, and when I give lessons and I give, I have a couple people, I give lessons to now, uh, I see, basic concepts in a completely different light than i ever have before and then i noticed them come up in my games now because i gave them as a lesson i sometimes learn more from the lessons i give than the lessons i take that's awesome well i'll be your minus excellent (laughs) let me know when and we'll schedule it all right thanks thanks jason yeah talk to you soon